Welcome everyone to the forum where science comes to socialize. I'm Cleo. With me today are Aubrey and Daniela, and we've got a very tangible, useful, down-to-earth hot topic for you this episode. Oh, you mean as opposed to the big picture, almost existential nature of space travel that we covered last time? (laughs) Yes, this episode is about something much, much smaller than that. Physically, anyways, not any less important, though, that's for sure. And that was Aubrey, by the way. Oh, right. (laughs) Hey, all. And it's Daniela here. Today on the show, we're talking about one of my all-time favorite topics, poop. Well, that's not actually the case, Dee. True. It's not my favorite topic, but it's definitely my favorite emoji. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's where we're going with this either. Okay, so it's not technically about poop, just sort of related, but still worth the shout out. Right. So what we're actually talking about is the fascinating world of probiotics. Included in this conversation will also be pre- and synbiotics, and we're going to try to figure out what exactly these things are and if they can do anything good for us. So let's set the scene a bit, shall we? You're strolling down the pharmacy aisle of your local grocery store, having just suppressed the urge to buy the latest celebrity-inspired pint of Ben & Jerry's, your weary eyes gaze at the shelves and see no less than four colorful bottles that read probiotic on their labels. Next, having lost all willpower, you walk back to the dairy aisle, but instead of Stephen Colbert's Americone dream, you're greeted by hundreds of containers of yogurt. You're frustrated, wondering, is there a single bottle or container now that doesn't say live cultures or great source of probiotics on it? Wow, that was... Beautiful. Thanks, I know. I was going to say oddly specific, but that works too. (laughs) Well, I think by now we've all heard about probiotics and their proposed importance. We're in the middle of what you could probably call a probiotics craze. I even saw probiotics marketed through a face cream the other day. But... How much scientific evidence is there to back up this dietary, and maybe even cosmetic, fad? Where do we find probiotics, and what do they actually do inside our bodies? Why is everyone so excited about them? And another important question, is it possible that they could do us any harm? These are going to be key questions guiding us through today's episode. If you have any more questions about this topic that we don't end up covering, though, Reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at ISGP Forum, on Facebook by searching ISGP's The Forum, or on our website at isgpforum.org. We're also lucky to have Dr. Mindy Har helping us with this episode. She's a registered dietitian and nutrition educator. Dr. Har has over 40 years of experience as a clinician and dietitian, a private practice, and is currently situated at the New York Institute of Technology, where she chairs the Department of Interdisciplinary Health Sciences. We'll be hearing some insights from her a little later in the episode. So let's start by defining the word probiotic. At its most fundamental level, a probiotic is a living microorganism, often a bacterium or yeast, that has an intended benefit when consumed. This benefit is often the act of restoring good bacteria in our digestive systems by colonizing our gut mucosa. We don't need to go into excruciating detail, but this colonization happens in slightly different ways depending on the bacterial strain and the gastrointestinal region inhabited, among a few other factors. As we'll discuss a bit further later, scientists have really only scratched the surface when it comes to identifying all the different strains of probiotics. However, there are seven core genera of microorganisms that we use most often in probiotic products. 
these are Lactobacillus, Bifidobacterium, Saccharomyces, Streptococcus, Enterococcus, Escherichia, and Bacillus. And that was also impressive. <laughs> Just to knock out a few other definitions right off the bat, a prebiotic is something you could consume to promote the growth of probiotics, and a symbiotic is a substance that combines both of these things. Pre, pro, and symbiotics are all accessible in pill form, which is what I personally think of first, but they're also naturally found in certain foods. Now for some examples. Fiber is considered a really great prebiotic because, you guessed it, it creates a good environment in your gut for the growth of probiotics. Foods high in fiber, then, like broccoli or whole grains, can serve as dietary prebiotics. Probiotics, so again, the ones directly adding good bacteria to your body, can be found in fermented foods like kombucha or sauerkraut. They're also prevalent in yogurt made with live bacteria or cultures. Probiotics are also already found in our bodies. That's right, we can be our own probiotic-producing machines. We just have to feed these bacteria appropriately. So, if you're like me, this all sounds a little bit gross. The, the thought of bacteria in my food and body is not exactly what I'd call a riveting conversation starter, so you kind of have to wonder how these things got just so popular to begin with. It turns out that humans have been relying on getting pre- and probiotics through their food for quite some time. The consumption of fermented milk has been dated back to before 2000 BC, and records from a multitude of civilizations indicate common use of cheese and butter, both created through fermentation. Oh, and ready for this fun fact? Cleo, you're going to love this one. Some of the first cheeses were made when Sumerians crossed vast expanses of desert carrying milk in sheep stomachs. The enzymes from the stomach fermented the milk into curds, which altered the taste, travel life, and nutrition content of the food. Okay, so number one, ew. But secondly, even the Greek physician Hippocrates endorsed the consumption of fermented milk as both a food product and a medicine, claiming a potential to cure intestinal disorders. Clearer connections between fermentation, bacteria, and health began materializing in the late 1600s with the foundation of the discipline known as microbiology. So clearly this stuff has been around for a while and is fairly embedded in the history of human development. But where does that leave us today? To give us a peek into the more contemporary probiotic industry and its booming popularity, let's hear from Dr. Har. It's been about eight to 10 years, they started being looked at in research. In 2012, there was a national health interview survey that showed about 4 million, 1.6% of US adults had used probiotics or prebiotics in the previous 30 days. Among adult probiotics or prebiotics with the third most commonly used dietary supplement other than vitamins and minerals, and between 2007 and 2012, probiotics use quadrupled. 2012 also showed 300,000 children ages 4 to 17 had used pre or probiotics in the previous 30 days. I'm sure since 2012, this is seven years ago, it's even more. As Dr. Har mentions, the most specific numbers we have are from all the way back in 2012. And while there aren't really solid figures out there on current U.S. or global use of probiotics, we can definitely use those market trends we've referenced to infer that the popularity has only continued to grow in the last seven years. 
But why are people so interested in these products and supplements? What is it that they're supposed to be doing for us in a tangible fashion? To answer this question, we need to take a quick sidestep into a conversation about the microbiome. The microbiome was first officially recognized in the 1990s and has been one of the hottest research topics in recent years. It's like the Kylie Jenner makeup line of the science world. No one can stop talking about it, even though it's not necessarily a new idea, and it's practically built an entire industry around itself. We can't possibly talk about everything that microbiome researchers have been up to, but what we can do is provide you with a basic definition of the term. The microbiome technically refers to the genetic material of all the microbes, things like bacteria, fungi, and viruses, that live both on and within our bodies. However, the term has more popularly come to refer to the microbes themselves. The microbiome is an entity essential for human development and immunity, and it's thought that everyone has a really specific, personalized microbiome. Your microbiome begins developing as soon as you pass through the birth canal and get coated with your mom's gunk and stuff, for lack of better terms right now. So you start with that, but then what you eat and what environments you're exposed to further alter and develop and shape your microbiome throughout your life. Specific subsets of the microbiome exist in a couple different parts of your body, like your skin and mouth, but the main one people usually talk about is the gut microbiome, and that's what we're talking about here as well. As we grow up, we're usually taught that bacteria and other microbes are bad for us and important to avoid. But the reality is that some are good bacteria that are really essential to human life. In fact, the ratio of human cells to microbial cells on any given individual is close to one to one. So that means about half of you isn't actually you, but rather the microbial colonies that keep you going. Another crazy thing is that increasingly, Scientists are finding that the microbiome has more to do with human health than ever expected. It's not just about how your gastrointestinal tract functions. Now scientists are discovering connections between the microbiome and autoimmune diseases like diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and fibromyalgia. Researchers have also noted that people with obesity tend to have lower microbial diversity in their gut microbiomes. With all this new hype surrounding an idea that could really change the way we think about health, people are justifiably interested in figuring out how to have a healthier microbiome. Which is where poop comes into the picture, finally. Okay, apologies in advance for this example, but I just have to prove my point. You have max 60 seconds on this. Yes, okay, I can do that. Okay, so you know what has a lot of your body's bacteria in it? Your poop. Some scientists got this crazy idea that if you have a really healthy person with a good and diverse microbiome, then their fecal matter will also contain good and diverse bacteria. Thus, if you transplanted the healthy person's stool into an unhealthy person with a struggling microbiome, you could encourage those healthy bacteria to latch on and grow in their new home. And guess what? It works. Or at least it works enough of the time to be a real option for some people struggling with certain intestinal problems. I think you could say the main message here is that the microbiome is so exciting and inspiring that we're willing to trade poop with each other. <sighs> cool, guys. <laughs> but back to the subject at hand here. As you may have deduced already, consuming probiotics has been touted as another, less extreme way to give your microbiome what it needs to be diverse and flourishing and ultra-disease fighting. At this point, we've given you an idea of what probiotics are, where you can get them, 
and why they've been a dietary craze for a couple years now. This all sounds good and fine, but do the promises of a healthier gut actually hold up in scientific research? Is it possible that there are some drawbacks or downsides to loading up our bodies with these supplements? For those answers, and to hear more from Dr. Har, you'll have to stick around for the second half of our convo after this quick break. Stay tuned! Hey listeners, our show is hosted by the Institute on Science for Global Policy, a nonprofit think tank facilitating multi-stakeholder discussions of science policy topics ranging from climate change to food security. If you're interested in learning more about the ISGP, check out episodes 1 through 74 of the forum or visit scienceforglobalpolicy.org. Hello, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us here on the forum for our episode on probiotics. The first half of this episode was pretty straightforward and positive. So naturally, now it's time for a healthy dose of skepticism and uncertainty. Ah, personally, my favorite part. All right, so let's talk about actual effectiveness here. If you look online, you won't have a hard time finding quote-unquote evidence supporting claims that probiotics can help with everything from infant colic to tooth decay to, I don't know, aging skin. Various sources and pop media have been quick to jump on the probiotics train, particularly in the pill supplement form as quick fixes or miracle solutions to a lot of tough, chronic ailments that we humans face throughout our lives. Spoiler alert, though, if it sounds too good to be true, particularly in the medical world, it probably is. And this is likely the case for probiotic supplements. Researchers still lack the thorough testing and data needed to support such miraculous claims. In fact, multiple factors at play can lead to probiotic supplement consumption being not just ineffective, but even potentially harmful. Let's hear Dr. Har's thoughts on this, including an example of a small but alarming study. When you go over to the other side of the supermarket and just buy the bottle, first of all, even if it lists 50 probiotics, it may not be the exact probiotic that addresses what your problem is. That's number one. Number two, some people feel that they're treating themselves and don't need to be evaluated by their healthcare provider. They may have a urinary tract infection that really needs the attention of their provider. So in some cases, it may produce a problem. Some of the products, they may not be safe. They may have contaminants. There was one fascinating study that was done in Israel at the Weizmann Institute where they took two groups, gave them antibiotics, and then one group got probiotics for a week and the other group didn't get anything. The group that didn't get anything, their gut had restored itself to normal in a quicker time than the group who got the probiotics. Again, it was a small study, but it just gave us the idea that taking these substances may be a problem. In some cases, taking probiotics can produce a resistance to certain antibiotics. So I'm very, very cautious about taking supplements. These supplements, I don't think we're there yet in terms of an overall recommendation. So Dr. Har touches on a couple of things here. 
One of them being the idea that we really don't know yet how probiotic supplements are reacting in our bodies. In the case of that Israeli study, the probiotics weren't just ineffective, they actually seemed to slow the recovery of people participating in the study. Another thing that Dr. Har mentions is the idea of opting for probiotics and self-treating as opposed to consulting a healthcare provider. If you have a really nasty infection that needs treatment through antibiotics, but instead you don't go to the doctor and just up your probiotic intake, you could inadvertently be making yourself even sicker by ignoring the actual treatment needed. Basically, if you're not a doctor and you didn't go through the bajillion years of schooling needed to become a doctor, then you take some major risks when trying to treat yourself. Which is why I befriended so many pre-meds in college. I'm sure they'd be thrilled to hear that's the reason. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't the only reason, but it certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> Something else that Dr. Har brings up, though, that's really interesting is the idea of a contaminated product or a product that doesn't necessarily contain what you think it does. This opens up a whole can of worms into the world of supplement regulation, which is more interesting than it sounds, I promise. So you may be thinking, wait, hold up. I got this probiotic supplement at the pharmacy. It's in a nice bottle. It has a label. It's got that quality assurance seal thing. It looks legit. What could be so wrong with it? Well, it turns out that the key word here is supplement as opposed to drug. Probiotics are considered supplements and are regulated as such by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. When a drug goes through the U.S. regulatory system, it's considered guilty until proven innocent, as Dr. Har puts it. It's tested and tested and tested, there are clinical trials, and it only arrives to the market, aka your pharmacy, once we've done enough tests to prove the drug's safety. There are some cases where even with all this testing, drugs still have to get pulled from shelves later on due to unforeseen side effects, but that's pretty much a rare event. The regulation of supplements, however, doesn't work like this at all. Take a listen. When it comes to dietary supplements and probiotics are considered dietary supplements, they are innocent until proven guilty. They don't have to have research behind it saying, this is safe. This will do what you think it's doing. When you take two pills, this is the dose it has. That is not what has to be done. Any company can just create what falls into the category of dietary supplement and market that. And, I, and my students would say, or certain uh, patients would say, well, how could that be? When do they take it off the market? And I said, well, when enough people have died from it, when it's really deemed unsafe. So when something is a dietary supplement, you can't assume that it's totally safe. This may sound a bit extreme to people, but Dr. Har assures us that these aren't exaggerated claims. The supplement industry is a loophole of sorts when it comes to rigorous testing and regulation. As long as a substance isn't making a definitive health claim, and BT dubs something like, quote unquote, promotes a healthy digestive tract, is not considered a health claim and really doesn't mean anything at all. Right. So as long as it skirts that line, then things like vitamins and probiotics just don't receive the oversight you might think they do. To give us a quick anecdote of the consequences, here's Dr. Har again. I remember in the 90s, it was ephedra which is an, an herb, it was called fen-fen for weight loss. And it worked, people took it and they lost tons of weight and 
it was very popular. And then again, I, rem I, I remember teaching my students because I was going through, they already knew some of the downside and it was being sold like people were having like the way different products are sold and home parties and Herbalife was selling it and everybody was losing weight and feeling great. And I remember telling my students, well, not enough people have died. And then three weeks later, enough people died and they took it off the market and made it illegal. I am not saying that probiotics are in the same category, but people are overly confident in government oversight of dietary supplements when some caution should be raised. And having been in practice for as long as I have been, I keep seeing this happening, even with vitamins. For a while, vitamin E, every cardiologist was so sure that vitamin E should be taken by every patient with cardiovascular disease. And then they said, oops, no, not only is it not helpful, it could be harmful. So is that it then? Probiotics aren't worth our time until further testing, end of story? Not exactly. All of this certainly isn't to say that probiotics and the supplement industry as a whole are completely useless or even dangerous. But Dr. Haar is trying to point out here that we should probably exhibit much more caution when it comes to supplements. During our chat, Dr. Haar actually referenced Canada's regulatory structure when it comes to supplements, calling out how the country's stricter regulation show us a potential pathway that ensures at least some safety testing without greatly reducing access. She also couldn't stress enough the importance of more research in this field. We're not exactly sure what the future holds for these products, but a likely productive path forward would be guiding people towards specific probiotics for very specific issues, as opposed to, you know, throwing 50 bacterial strains at any given issue and seeing what happens for funsies. If healthcare providers are keeping up with all the latest developments in probiotic and microbiome research, and they see an opportunity for a supplement to help their patient, then this very well may work. What Dr. Haar is cautioning against is the indiscriminate use of over-the-counter products without consulting your doctor first. Another promising point in all of this is that the issues we've been discussing are mainly related to pill supplements, not foods containing probiotics like yogurt. As of this moment, there's really nothing to suggest that it's possible to overdo probiotic consumption through food. You can certainly eat too much sauerkraut and give yourself a stomach ache, but that's not going to be the fault of the probiotics. So long story short, probiotic supplements aren't a quick fix solution to solving your larger digestive and microbial ailments and imbalances. And changing your diet is a much more seamless solution to gradually building up those bacterial and little yeasty colonies in your gut. But if you're still really interested in using probiotics in supplement form, then we suggest you head on over to the National Institutes of Health website, which houses an extremely comprehensive list of all the scientific studies done in the world of probiotics. You can look through all the diseases or conditions that have been involved in probiotic testing, like acne or upper respiratory infections, and scroll through to read what the research has concluded so far. Just Google, quote, NIH probiotics, what you need to know, and the page will come right up. And to really drive home the message of today, here's Dr. Har one last time with some free nutritional advice for us all. My closing message is that it's an exciting area, but there is still a lot of unknown. And when there is unknown and possible consequences, 
we don't want to rush to start taking substances in our bodies that may not have any effect or may do harm, but we do not have to wait one more minute to make diet changes that we know will have an impact on the microbiome and help our bodies create very healthy bacteria in our gut. And with that, it's time for us to wrap up our conversation. We spent this episode talking with you all about the elusive world of probiotics, the microbiome, and even some governmental regulation. Hopefully, we were able to shed some light on probiotic best practices and what you can do to better your own health when it comes to understanding these groundbreaking and exciting medical developments. It's definitely a confusing subject, though, and you probably have at least a few more questions, so you can send them our way using at ISGP Forum on Instagram and Twitter, or you can search for ISGP's The Forum on Facebook. We definitely want to hear your stories. Have you noticed all the probiotic claims on food products? Does this affect your purchases? Are you a regular probiotic supplement consumer, and have you noticed any differences in your health? And please, 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 if you've undergone a fecal transplant procedure, we definitely want to hear all about it. Well, Dee specifically wants to hear about it. I think I'm good without. Yeah, same actually. (laughs) Thank you to Dr. Mindy Har for providing her insight for this episode, and thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time right here on the forum. The Forum is sponsored by the Institute on Science for Global Policy, or ISGP, an international think tank that has no opinions and does not lobby. Any views expressed in the preceding podcast are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by ISGP. Podcast theme music is provided by Steve Combs and Lee Rosevier. For more information on the Forum and its programs, please visit our website at isgpforum.org.